there is a crisis described in Revelation 13 and warned against in Revelation 14, but Revelation is not the first place in Scripture where this idea of a person receiving a mark is found. In Genesis chapter 4, there is a man, his name is Cain. He's the brother of Abel. They're the sons of Adam. And Cain receives a mark. God gives him a mark. And the reason why God places a mark upon Cain is to protect Cain. Now, the story goes, as most of you know, like this. So Cain and Abel, they're brothers, and they both worship God, okay? They both worship the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Both Cain and Abel uh, are true worshipers of the true God, but they worship God in different ways. And the way that Cain worships God is not acceptable to God, and God does not respect Cain's worship. But Abel, God does respect. He appreciates his worship. He accepts his worship. And because of this, Cain gets angry at his brother Abel, and he kills his brother Abel. And God comes to Cain, and he pronounces judgment upon Cain for killing his brother Abel. And Cain is, is distraught, and he says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. If people on the earth find me, they're going to kill me. And God says, Okay, what I'll do is I'll place a mark upon you, Cain. I'll put a mark upon your body. And anyone who sees that mark, they'll know that if they mess with you, I'm going to mess with them. And so God places a mark on Cain to protect him from men and what men might do to him. So, so just get this all in your mind. Most of you know the story. You've heard it before. Uh, it's a part of, of perhaps your religious education when you were a kid. The story of Cain and Abel. You just distill it down. Here's what's going on. Two guys are worshiping God. One guy's worshiping God the way God wants to be worshipped. One guy's worshiping God the way God doesn't want to be worshipped. And the one that's worshiping God in the way that God doesn't want to be worshipped kills the one who worships God the way God wants to be worshipped. The one that wasn't worshipping God the right way receives a mark. And this mark is going to protect him, not from God's judgment, but from man's judgment. Okay, so the second time in Scripture, the idea of a mark is seen is in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's a prophet. He's a really cool guy to me. I love the beginning chapters of the book of Ezekiel. He sees a vision of God. And like, if you're in the spirit, and if you're in touch with God, and you read the first few chapters of Ezekiel, it's heavy. Like, it's powerful. You feel it. You, you, just, you can just see the throne of God with Ezekiel. And God basically says, hey, Ezekiel, I'm not sending you to a strange people who don't speak your language. I'm sending you to my people. And you know what, Ezekiel, it's going to be tough because they're stiff-necked, they're hard-hearted, and they're not going to want to listen to you, uh, but I'm sending you anyways. Just go and preach to them, go and talk to them, whether they hear you or whether they don't hear you, just go preach to them. And he says that over and over to Ezekiel, and it crescendos in this basic statement from God. He says, you know what, Ezekiel, they're actually never going to listen to you, but I'm sending to you to them anyways, because you know what, at the end of the day, they're going to know that there was a prophet in Israel. Kind of cool, you know? Uh, God cares for people so much that even if they're going to reject him, he's going to send them a prophetic warning because he can't live with himself unless he does everything in his power to help people be saved. And this is a really awesome lesson for us, right? Sometimes we're sent by God to go preach, 
even when God knows the people we're going to preach to aren't going to listen to us. And God says, go anyways. Go anyways. Because at the end of the day, they're going to know there was a prophet in Israel. God reached out to them. I tried. That's a pretty powerful message about God, isn't it? God is the kind of person who sends a message, even if you're going to reject it, because he can't live with himself unless he does all that he can to save you. And so Ezekiel's tasked with this really enormous responsibility. Uh, and, and in Ezekiel chapter 8, he says, I saw God, and God looks like a piece of metal that's on fire, okay? It's like fire from his legs down, and the top of him is just like burnished bronze, just shining and bright. And he says that something like a hand came from God and grabbed him by the head and picked him up and took him on a tour of the Jewish temple. And what God wanted to do was show him what was happening in the secret lives of the leaders of the people of God. And so he's, he's, he's being kind of hovered around the Jewish temple. And what he sees inside of the temple, which was consecrated for the worship of God, is the leaders of God worshiping idols. And more than that, he sees women who are crying for the pagan god Tammuz. So God's holy place, God's sanctuary, is not only being defiled and perverted, you've got people who are so deeply attached to the idols of the world that they're crying for them. And then it, it basically like pinnacles, the, the text of scripture pinnacles, with God showing Ezekiel right in his holy temple, people bowing down in obeisance and in worship to the sun. This is the narrative there in uh, Ezekiel chapter 8. And then what transpires in Ezekiel chapter 9 is Ezekiel sees some guys with weapons in their hands. And God ordains these men or angels or whatever they're supposed to represent to, to judge, to execute judgment upon the apostasy of Israel. And then there's a man seen, and he has an inkhorn, a writing instrument. And this man with the writing instrument is commanded by God to put a mark on those people who cry and who sigh because of the abominations that are being done in Israel. So he says basically, mark the people who are not worshiping the sun. And when you mark the people who are not worshiping the sun, that mark is going to spare them from my judgment. So, so here's something that I want you to know and consider. The mark story, the story of the mark of Cain, is one side of a coin. And the story of the marking of the people of Israel who were not worshiping pagan deities and the sun and the temple is the other side of the coin. Okay, just keep this in your head. So the first mark was given to a man who worshipped the wrong way, and that would protect him from the judgments of men. And then the second time the mark in the Bible is seen, it's placed upon people who don't worship the sun, right? So that they can escape the judgments of God. Does that make sense? Two sides of the same coin, right? One group of people is marked to save them, or one man is marked to save him from the judgments of men. The other people are marked to save them from the judgments of God. Now turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15, and the Bible says, And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I'll just 
make a quick mention of what the image of the beast is. For those of you guys who've never thought of it or studied it or considered it, it's really not that complicated uh, to understand what the image of the beast is. Because what the beast was, was a paganized form of Christianity. It was essentially pagan, but it was professedly Christian. And it ruled over the Western European nations over the period of the Middle Ages. And so the Bible is here forecasting a time where a system, a power on earth, would be crafted that would be similar to or in the image of what the medieval Christian church was in ancient times. So what's the beast? Well, it's a paganized Christianity that uses the power of the state to compel worship. Well, what would the image of the beast be? But the same thing, an image of that. Some kind of, of system, some kind of power that compels worship, that's professedly, you know, has a Christian flavor, or a Christian kind of brand, a Christian motif, but it's essentially fundamentally pagan. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the Bible is just predicting, predicting that this, this kind of a circumstance is going to come upon the world. So then it says, if you don't worship the image of the beast, you're going to be killed. And then it says, he causes all the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And then it says, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the beast, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now check this out. According to Revelation, if you receive the mark of the beast, whose judgment are you protected from? Man's judgment, right? Man's judgment. You're going to be compelled to receive a mark. And if you don't receive the mark, who's going to judge you? Who's going to persecute you? Who's going to go after you? Who? Men. And isn't this just like Genesis chapter 4, right? Cain is marked and it protects him from the judgment of men. And, and the opposite is also the case. The third angel's message, it says this. And the third angel followed them, said, If any man receives the mark of the beast or the number of his name, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Okay, so, if you receive the mark of the beast, who are you protected from? Men. But if you receive the mark of the beast, who's going to judge you? God. Right? You follow this? And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 7, there's an angel that comes down to earth, and he talks to four angels who are holding back a lot of trouble. Holding back a lot of trouble. And the angel that comes from heaven says, Hey guys, hold back the trouble. Keep holding back the trouble until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So we need to seal the servants of our God in their foreheads. Why? Because we don't want them to be hurt by the judgments that are to come. So it's really, really simple. Two sides of the same coin. God marks those, right? So those who are his, the devil marks those who are his. And if you're marked by Satan, you're protected by Satan and from the persecution of men. And if you're marked by God, you're protected by God and you're free from the judgment of God. That's the overarching point here, yeah? In Revelation 14, uh, in verse 7, it begins, uh, it says, uh, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And then what does it say right after that? And worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of water. Okay? So, 
right there in the first angel's message, the message from God to the world at the end of time is the call to worship God, the creator, not the beast, but God, the creator, the one who made. And it's interesting because after it says worship him who made, a, a, a good portion of the fourth commandment is quoted. So the fourth commandment in the Decalogue says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will work and do all of your labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you will do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor the cattle, nor the stranger that's within your gates. Why? For in six days, this is now quoted in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that in them is, therefore the Lord rested on the Sabbath day, and he blessed it. Okay? Interesting, right? Right here, in God's last warning to a perishing world, he says, worship God, who made. It reminds us of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Now, the Sabbath day is a memorial of creation. It's important for biblical Christians to realize and understand this, Okay? When you, when, you, when you read the creation narrative, when you read the creation story, you see uh, the earth is a confused mass of matter. It's without form and void. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know exactly what that means. It's just a discombobulated mess of matter that has no form and it's void. But the Bible says the Spirit of God basically hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God divided the light from the darkness, and then he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now, there's just a side note that I just want to just mention because I was thinking about it last night. Some people wonder, how in the world could uh, God have created a day, right, like a day and a night, and said, let there be light, before there was a sun in the sky? Because the sun's not made for a few days. But the Bible says days are already uh, made, evening and morning of the first day, evening and morning of the second day. And isn't it the fourth day or the third day that the sun's made? Okay, I'm disqualifying my own sermon here by asking that question. It sounds dumb. But, um, you know, what I've always thought, and this makes perfect sense to me, and I think most Adventist scholars agree with this, is that the Bible says, for God is light, and in him is no darkness or variableness of turning. I think that when God said, let there be light, what he was doing is he was manifesting himself, his divine person, into the material sphere of existence. God was the light, perhaps. That's my thinking. But anyways, so the earth is a discombobulated mass of matter. God begins to form it and to fashion it. And after every single day of creation, you guys probably know this, it says, and God saw all that he made, and it was good. And then God saw all that he made, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. This is this, the, the statement that is after every day in the creation week. And then at the end of the week, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And I ask the question, how good is something when the God of the universe says, that's good? How good is something when the God of the universe says, that's very good? Who's better qualified to know what's good and very good than the God of the universe? Amen. Right? So if you say something's good, well, if I say something's good, we're only so qualified to determine what's good. But God, when he says it's good, how good is it? Yeah. And then the Bible says that when all of the works of God were finished, right? 
He rested on the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay? So what the Sabbath is, in the context of the creation week, is the memorial of creation. And not only that, it's the memorial of how good God creates stuff and how perfectly God does stuff. Does this make sense? The Bible says that when the angels saw the creation week, there in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, it says that they shouted with singing and praise. Ecclesiastes 3 says, uh, whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken from it, for God has done it, and everyone should just fear in his presence. That's basically what it says. So here's the point that I'm making to you, okay? What God does, he does perfectly. He's the creator, and what he creates is very good. Could you say amen? amen. And the Sabbath is a sign, a memorial of that fact. It's the signature of God at the end of the week saying, I'm the one who makes things like this perfect. The apostolic church, not in that the early Christians actually honored the Sunday as a day of worship, but rather it is true that the Christian church in the earliest centuries, they actually did celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on the Sunday. That is a historical fact. Nobody denies it. It's actually true. But the historical records show that the Christian church of the first and second century primarily, primarily just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. They were together. They were very communal in how they, they lived and functioned. And the Sunday was something that they celebrated. But over time, what began to happen is that for Christians, it became advantageous to disassociate themselves with anything that happened to be particularly Jewish because the Jews in the Roman Empire became increasingly unpopular, and so the Christians began to emphasize more Sunday and the celebration of Sunday, and to de-emphasize more the Sabbath, because that was seen, by and large, as a Jewish celebration. Antisemitism, coupled with a desire to fit in to the surrounding world that all celebrated Sunday already. Sunday was a a widely celebrated pagan festival day. It was the venerable day of the sun. It was a pagan day of worship that the Christian church began to inculcate as its Sabbath over time because it was advantageous for them to do so. So compromise, anti-Semitism, and the desire to just kind of fit in affected the transition of, of the change of the Sabbath to Sunday, basically. So the mark of the beast is going to reflect the beast. The beast is a fundamentally pagan institution and system of worship, but it's got a Christian veneer. And Sunday is uh, a seemingly Christian celebration, but its underlying reality is pagan. The mark of the beast is not like a literal mark, like a barcode or a ship or anything like that. John is a Hebrew prophet. Now, he's a Christian. Uh, the book of Revelation itself shows us that John was was quite familiar with the Old Testament. And really, to understand the book of Revelation, it's important that you have a familiarity with the larger uh, body. He talks about, like, in Revelation, Babylon. Well, if you're, if you're familiar with the Old Testament Babylon and its position in uh, the history of salvation, you're more informed and better equipped to understand what John is talking about in the Revelation when he talks about Babylon, right? He talks about... Uh, Jezebel, and when he gives messages to the seven churches, and Jezebel was a queen who was married to the king of Israel. And if you know her story, if you understand how she's positioned in the history of scripture, you can better understand what John is talking about. So John is always in the Revelation drawing from Old Testament stories and Old Testament symbols to communicate apocalyptic end time realities. 
This is just how he works, how he functions, right? And so he's talking here about a mark on the hand or on the forehead. In the Old Testament, we don't have time to go into this, but, but in Deuteronomy 6, in Exodus chapter 12, all over the Torah, you see God saying to his people, take what I say, take your history and how I've worked in your life and put it on your hand as a sign, put it on your mind as, as a sign so that you won't forget me, that you'll always remember me. And in essence, what God is saying, he's not saying you like write messages on your head so that when you're talking to your friend, you can like read the Bible at the same time. He's just simply saying, take what I teach you and tell you and actually make it a part of what you think. Inculcate it into your mind and make it a part of yourself and bring it into your heart and make it a part of your being and actually practice it in your life. That's what he's saying. So John is just drawing off of that stuff, okay? And that's, in essence, what he's talking about. When he's like, at the end of time, there's going to be this crazy stuff going on. People are going to be forced to receive a mark on their hand or on their forehead as a sign of allegiance. Well, he's not talking about a barcode or any of that stuff he's talking about. There's going to be uh, a worship issue at the end of time, and the devil's going to try to get worship through a paganized form of Christianity, and he's going to give people a mark, right? A mark, which is going to be a sign of allegiance, and the mark is going to reflect his system and what he is, and the warning against the mark basically says, hey, don't receive the mark, keep the commandments of God. So the mark of the beast is, is presented in contrast to the commandments of God. In the three angels' message, you see that those that receive the mark, they don't have any rest, and they're definitely not worshiping God as creator and resting in his perfect works. Guys, Sunday worship, essentially, and I'm not saying that people who worship on Sunday are in this space necessarily, but Sunday worship at its core is really a symbol and a sign of righteousness by the works of man because it's a creation of man. It's a celebration that man invented, right? And when you honor it, when you rest on it, you may be doing that ignorantly and God winks at your ignorance and you may in the spirit be worshiping perfectly finally and amen and hallelujah you're a son of God praise Jesus but essentially like on its on its fundamental level Sunday itself as a worship day is a sign of righteousness by by men it is it's a sign of man's authority it's a sign of man's work and that's in essence what it is and the Sabbath at its core is a sign of righteousness by faith in what God does and nothing else at the end of time, people keep the commands of God or they receive the mark of the beast. It's just that simple. If you want to receive uh, God's seal, God's sign, follow Jesus with all of your heart. Try to be one of the 144,000. Uh, I don't think that's a literal number, but just do all in your power to follow Jesus wherever he goes, to not be defiled with the apostate systems of worship on this planet. Don't be a liar. Be honest and try to be complete in Jesus and keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus and you won't receive the mark of the beast. Now, I just want to say a few more things here just to close. It's just a principle that I want to share with you from Scripture and uh, then we will kind of close. Uh, so, my wife, um, she doesn't tell me how to dress, but she likes to suggest how I should dress. She didn't dress me today. Now, just want to give you a, meta, a little illustration. If my wife said to me, hey, Matt, today I want you to wear jeans and your black wherever he goes t-shirt and I get and then my son Max says no dad today I want you to wear your jeans and your Hurley t-shirt I have two messages coming to me from two different people one message is coming to me from my wife and one message is coming to me from 
my son, okay? So I choose not to obey my son, I choose to obey my wife. And I decide, yeah, good call. And I decide to um, wear my jeans and my black t-shirt that says wherever he goes. Now, me wearing this black t-shirt and me wearing these blue jeans uh, becomes, in a sense, a sign of who I've chosen to obey, right? So my choice to obey my wife manifests itself in actions that mark me as loyal to my wife. Does this make sense? If on the other hand, I chose to ignore what my wife said and do what my son said, like just wear the jeans and the Hurley t-shirt, okay, I would have chosen to do what my son said to do and my actions would have shown that, have been a sign of that. Does this make sense? Okay, so in Romans chapter six and verse 16, it says, know you not that whosoever you yield yourselves servants to obey, that's whose servants you are, whoever you obey. So if there's a man-made system at the end of time that says to people, you will worship like this in this way, you'll worship like those leaders of Israel in Ezekiel, you'll pray to the sun, You'll worship on the venerable day of of the sun as a sign of your loyalty to Jesus, right? And you obey that. You choose to accept that. You say, okay, sure. That acceptance of that command aligns you with the one that you've chosen to obey. Does this make sense? And the act of your obedience is a sign. It's a mark. Do you follow that logic? It's pretty simple. But on the other hand, if God says, no, 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 you rest in my perfect work, you rest in me and what I've done, and you accept the memorial of my creation, then guess what? If you obey that, the act of obedience and the keeping of God's commands, it identifies you, it marks you. It's just that simple. So at the end of time, God says, worship me as creator. At the end of time, the beast says, no, 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 you worship me the way that I say. Whichever you choose marks you, identifies you as the servant of the one that you're obeying. It's just that simple. God has blessed us and informed us a little bit more and encouraged us more to get into prophecy, to get into the scriptures. It just really kind of drives me mad when people separate what God doesn't. God doesn't separate prophecy and Jesus and gospel-centeredness and apocalyptic truth. God doesn't separate that. But for some reason, some of us do in our church. That, that kind of happens a lot, right? Yes or no? That happens a lot. We separate what God doesn't, but we shouldn't separate what God doesn't. If I care about Jesus, I should care about the messages that come from Jesus. Did you know the revelation is of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants? Did you know the revelation is something that Jesus has for you as a gift? And if you love Jesus, you'll love the gifts that he gives you. I just want to make that point, and it's really, really important. Now, the mark of the beast at the end of time is going to be Sunday observance. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I think it's perfectly clear when you line everything up. It's just simple. It's just clear. It's presented in contrast to the commandments of God. Don't receive the mark of the beast. That's the third angel's message. Don't receive the mark of the beast. That's the third angel's message. If you receive the mark of the beast, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And you will be tormented with fire and with brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of your torment is going to ascend up forever and ever. And you will have no rest day or night if you receive the mark of the beast or the number of his name. And then it says, but here is the patience of the saints. So think about that. 
Here's the warning. Don't receive the mark of the beast. And the warning is so strong because the circumstances in the world at the end of the of end of time are presenting such a challenging circumstance that the people in that circumstance need a message that like shakes them up and says, okay, I get it. I have perspective. This makes sense. I'm not going to succumb. And immediately after the warning, there's a shift in attention to here's the patience of the saints. Here's the patience of the saints. They keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So the Ten Commandments of God, which includes the Sabbath, are presented in opposition to the mark of the beast. And it commands the world to honor it in one way, shape, or form. And the Bible predicts a resurgence of what happened in the past. And that's the issue at hand. Now, I'm an American. You guys may, may have heard me tell this illustration before. And in America, we are proud of the flag. So if I took that flag, that Australian flag, and chucked it on the ground and started to stomp on it, right? Stomp on the flag, you should be mad. You should be upset. And then you get upset with me and I say, what's the matter? This is just a flag. It's just a, it's just a, it's just cloth and paint. No, it's not. It's tens of thousands of men who gave their lives so that I can have what I have right now. And that's what I just stomped on. How much more of the Sabbath? Yeah. It represents God's kingdom, God's goodness, God's creative power, God's redemptive power. And guess what happens? When you stomp on that, you know what you do? You stomp on everything it represents. And so at the end of time, what's going to happen is God's sign, God's symbol that represents what he is, his flag, it's going to be chucked on the ground and stomped. And that's what's going to happen. And the question for you is, what are you going to do? I would say fear God and give him glory because he's unselfish. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. He's great. The hour of his judgment has come. Don't worry about the judgments of men. Fear God and give him glory. A friend of mine, this is the last thing I'll say. His name is Jared. He shared with me a connection from scripture that I thought was absolutely amazing. He said that when Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, what he says, it's an encapsulation in principle. It's a principle encapsulation of what's happening at the end of time. Give your supreme regard, not to the ones who can just affect you temporarily. Give supreme regard to the one who can affect you eternally. And he's done everything to win your favor and to win your love. So keep talking about Jesus, please. Keep talking about scripture. Keep studying together. Keep opening the word and asking God to bless you. The book of Revelation was not written without tears, and it can't be understood without tears. Work hard. Dig into the scriptures. Become more Bible students. Don't be lazy. Don't be intellectually lazy and soft. Work hard. Hard work never hurt anybody. Anything worth having is worth working for. Get into the word. Seek the wisdom of God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind, and you'll find. God bless you guys. It's been a pleasure this week. I'm super stoked I'm done presenting because I'm tired and exhausted. But God is good, amen? He's been awesome. Please receive the seal of God and not the mark of the beast. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are and all you've done for us. We as a people, we love Jesus. And you know what, Lord? Someone could say, if they listen to this on Facebook, if they are here in the crowd, they could say, you know what, I don't, I don't really think that his case was too terribly compelling. If that's what they think, Lord, I pray that what we would all agree upon and what we would all say amen to is that here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, not to be saved, but because they are saved. You reconciled us 2,000 years ago. You've given us your spirit, and we want to be obedient to you because we love you and care for you. Help us to have that spirit and that mindset. And Lord, may we all say amen to the fact that we want to follow you fully. You give us your seed to become more like Jesus, and I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks.